0: Okay, look, you you'd be familiar with this now, let me read it to you. Uh, This is a story about four people. Everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. You've heard of them? Look, there was an important job to be done and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realised that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have. If you can follow that, you're a better person than me. Okay, Have you come across that? Yeah, you know it? I discovered this when I was a kid at school. It was on one of the walls in one of my classrooms, and I was always fascinated by it. I hadn't a clue what it meant. Uh, I'm not much wiser now. But uh, look, you know the point. And, and look, it's, I'm, I'm laying a little foundation for where we're going in Esther 4. So let's begin the chapter. If this is the, look, It's just one verse in Esther that people know, what is it? before he comes up there. No, it's not up there. If there's one verse in Esther that you all, everybody knows, one verse of the Bible, what is it? For such a time as this. And we're there. This is uh, the the pinnacle. Uh, this is where it's all going. And look, so I think it's on the screen for you there. Who knows, but you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. The, the, that's the verse. And we're going to get there and, and, and see how that is relevant to people who are living in Jesus' day. Something we're hammering home on the theology course, that we're no longer living in Moses' day or his, his ezekiel or Hezekiah. This is Jesus' day. This is the era that he's ushered in. We're coming under his banner his oversight, his instruction, his lordship, his grace. That's the great thing about Jesus' day. It is the day of grace. And so look, uh, heading for these parts, is, as, we, as we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, is that it's, it's been in God's providence. The God who is bigger than me and my circumstances. And our heading today is, the Christian's regular, defining moments. You notice, I haven't phrased that first heading as though there's just one defining moment, but rather, and I think this is how we're to look at Esther 4, that the Christian faces, regularly faces, defining moments daily, that it's a regular thing, today, is a defining moment for the members of Living Word Bible Church. Your presence here is a defining moment. Your activity and the things that we've been engaged in are defining moments. So look, first one. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, so what had been done so far, what's happened in chapter 3? If you can cast our minds back. What's happened in chapter 3? Someone shout out. This was the, the moment... When the edict was issued, the Jews are to be annihilated, okay, uh, wholesale. And so when Mordecai learned all, all that, that had happened, okay, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out, went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. We said, if you remember, this wasn't religious, he wasn't bowing because. It was an act of worship to bow to Haman. No, it was called protocol. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, probably ancestral, ancient feud between his people and the Amalekites, Mordecai refuses to bow. And in doing so, didn't just bring attention to himself. He brought attention to his whole race. And look, verse 2. And will all the world's officials at the King's Gate knelt and paid honour to Haman, Mordecai would not. And so in verse 13 we're told that the order to destroy, of chapter 3, kill and annihilate all the Jews, went out into the kingdom. This was going to cost everybody's lives. And so what does Mordecai do? He does what any good Jew would do. Look, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, he wore ashes, and he wailed loudly and bitterly. And everyone joined him. Verse 3, look, there was great mourning among all the Jews. Do we understand what that's about? Sackcloth is coarse clothing, okay? Ashes from fire, there's wailing. What's he doing? How would you describe his act? It is. His mourning, uh, there's repentance here. Look, here's, here's Alexander. It, this was a common means in the ancient world of expressing grief, humility and penitence. And the whole nation are humbling themselves. Look, one of the things Corona has done, it's got people seeking God who otherwise haven't been. You're aware of that, aren't you? Although churches' attendance figures have somewhat declined generally after COVID because a lot of us do. hey, look, isn't it true that during COVID, Sundays were great? Because you could get up at 9.45 and whilst whilst you're having breakfast and putting the kettle on and hoovering the floor, you can listen to whoever's preaching in the background. It doesn't matter if you're not listening well. Who knows? And then at 11.15 you switch it off and there's no tea and coffee and packing up and everything else. You just get on with your life, go for a bike ride or go walking or surfing or whatever else you like doing. It was great, wasn't it? Sadly, some Christians thought it was so great that they're still doing it now. And but normally there's nothing quite like a nationwide or global calamity to get people and there are people today it seems who may not be attending church just yet but who are hooking into church services online across the world we have even living where barber church has an audience we we haven't had up until covid seriously and so here in the nation because of this of this Calamity, this crisis, the whole nation is coming together and seeking God afresh. Meanwhile, where's Esther? Where's Esther? She's in the palace, she's married to the king. Okay, it's been five years. And, and you see, unlike the king who's privy to everything that's going on in his kingdom, his wife is somehow, so in some sense, isolated from everything. She, she, she's, she's shut in the palace, away from everything, and she has no idea at all. Look, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress because she hadn't got a clue what was going on. And she's... She's heard he's, he's wearing sackcloth. He's mourning. And, and so she hands out clothes. Why does she want him to wear normal clothes when he's wearing sackcloth? She's concerned for him. Why is she concerned? She, she sends out clothing. She doesn't even ask how he is, or what's going on. She just sends clothes. Put these on. Take those off. Stop wailing. Why? Yes. Pardon? The, attention. What did you say, Nikki? You. Yes. Because... When you were in the, in the court of the Persian king, if you read Nehemiah, who's, I don't know if you've read Nehemiah recently, he, he, he was afraid to be sad before the king. Why? What was the issue about being sad or wailing or expressing emotion before the king? He didn't want any of it. You see, the king didn't care that your life was falling apart. He doesn't. He doesn't it, the thing about sharing burners. look, I mean, we have Helen who counsels people. You know, I think as a church we ought to regularly be lifting up Alan before the Lord because look, anyone who's been in any kind of counselling situation, when you, when you listen to someone's worries what occurs to you? You take on the burden. And, and, and the king here he doesn't care about Nehemiah he doesn't want to carry Nemo and Mordecai's burdens and so the king could very easily have your head if you made him feel sad because you're sad. So you see the point? And so in the king's presence, you have to give, up, give, give off positive vibes. And so she's afraid. She sends him clothes because it's not safe to be like this in the king's presence. And then getting nowhere with him He obviously wasn't listening. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the kings, verse 5, king's eunuchs, and assigned to her and ordered him to find out. Okay, he's not listening to her. So find out what's wrong with Mordecai. Mordecai told him everything. So give him all the details and what had happened. And so finally the information gets to Queen Esther. Esther, verse 8, he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict so that she could see firsthand. And uh, has been published to show Esther and to explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Mordecai has taken leave of his senses. This is a national calamity and the whole nation is on the verge of, of genocide. And you, can, you, can you see the, the pressure that it's plying on on Esther? What does he ask her to do? Yeah. Now look, I mean, he works in the court. What do you not do with a king? You don't walk into his presence. And you don't throw yourself. Do you know if you throw yourself? Look, imagine you wouldn't see Queen Elizabeth and you threw yourself at her. Well, what would happen? Boy, you'd be. <laughs> see, I mean, that could be dangerous, couldn't it, for the Queen? Who cares about you? Pardon? Send you to America. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> send you to there. Okay, so look, look, I mean, he's taken leave of his senses, hasn't he? He's 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 plying all this pressure on her. He's asking her to do the most ridiculous thing. You do not go before the king, and you certainly do not throw yourself at him, even if you're the queen. And, and and so look, Esther. So she responds. Look at this. Look, she says. Look, all the kings. Look, what's the matter with Mordecai? All the king's officials know that this is not the way you handle calamity on the. Persian reign. Look, any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court, any man, including me the queen, without being summoned, without being asked. Okay, there is, but one Persian law, verse 11. Okay, whoever you are, one Persian law, you walk into the king's presence and there's no questions asked. Whoever you are, listen to this, okay, but they be put to death. Unless, it just so happens, for whatever reason, the king extends his scepter to you. But, listen to, the, listen to what Esther says. But, it has been 30 days since I was called. Even his wife had to be summoned since I was called to go to the king. Esther is, what, flabbergasted in modern terminology? She'd been married five years. And what do you notice in the relationship of Esther and King Xerxes here? It's waning. waning. Okay, for a man who was obsessed with sex, we said. Okay, his, his interest, 30 days, it's been a month, his interest in Esther is somewhat wavering. Life in the palace for Esther is changing, can you see that? He hasn't seen her, been with her for some time now. There's no doubt there's a change in circumstances. She's possibly walking on eggshells, who knows him, the next wrong step from Esther. And it could be easily off with her head. And beyond that, I mean, what Mordecai is obviously, is not realising. Look, it's been five years since she's been married. He and her probably haven't seen each other for five years. It's not as though, look, if you lived in the palace, you just said to the king, oh, I'm going down to the village to go and say you know, hi to my old mates. There's no way the king will lay you out of his sight. You see, the reason she was kept in the palace is to make sure that no one else looked at her. And if she wasn't leaving the palace. She was there. They probably haven't had any interaction for at least five years. Just think of Esther. And look, theologians are pretty rough on Esther here. You know, I've been pretty rough on her in the past myself. You know, you know, why isn't she doing something? Why isn't she grasping the magnitude of this situation and, 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 and rising to the occasion? But look, put yourself in Esther's shoes. And remember, one thing we've said about the book of Esther, the book of Esther isn't airbrushed. You know, I take photos sometimes, and I have a, you know, a... A piece of software on my computer that I can make Brenton look pretty. Seriously? Really? You give me a photo, right? And I can make you a supermodel. Long legs, okay? I can remove digitally hair in unwanted places. I can put makeup on. You know, I can give you a new color. You can have a nice tan like me. You know, isn't that horrible? Off color, you know. The thing about Esther, there's no Photoshop editing. It's why it's such an amazing book, because it's real life. Remember we said, you know, Esther and Mordecai. Esther lands up in the bedroom of a of a of a king in a competition to see who's best ends up marrying him, Mordecai stands by. These are just real people. Remember, we said we're not casting stones because if you and I were there, Lorraine, we would have done exactly the same, probably. I would have stopped by and let the king take you. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I'm just telling you how it is. You know, Esther's real. And this is real life. Look, this poor girl has been taken from her family, you know, put into the king's bedroom. Next next thing you know is she's wearing a crown, she's a queen, and before you know it, she's stuck in a palace. All by herself. Isolated from her people, from her culture, from her religion. You know, it was impossible for Esther to practice Judaism in the palace. Impossible. How was she going to get hold of kosher food and keep Sabbath? Here she is, stuck in this environment, has no idea how her people are, what's going on. She's just surviving. And the king she married, it seems no longer interested. And she has a lonely existence in the palace. Just surviving. And don't think the material is wealth that she has around her. Look, we know in the West hey, what does a fancy fancy car do for you? Nothing. It doesn't change the quality of your life, does it? And it is Esther. And now all of a sudden, Mordecai throws this bombshell on her. Esther! I mean, look at him. She's just an ordinary girl. And all of a sudden, Mordecai is telling her that she's to be... The hero that saves the Jewish people. That she alone you know, can do this thing and she has to do it and be this hero and face the king and win the day. I mean, come on. Ordinary people, ordinary people don't become heroes like that. Has anybody ever seen the film Matrix? The Matrix? Complex film. But look... Within it, you've got Neo, this ordinary guy who's been rescued by Morpheus, who believes that Neo is the best thing since sliced bread. You, we know that saying here, yeah? Yeah, okay. Uh, and that he's, this, he's the fulfillment of all these prophecies, and he's going to save the human race from the, from the machine world who've overtaken the world. I mean, that's a massive thing to put on somebody's shoulder, isn't it? You know, Neo's struggling with this. I mean, I mean, if I came up to you, said to you, the whole of Christendom, Lorraine, you're getting old this morning, the whole of Christendom, Lorraine, is on your shoulders. What you do will determine the entire future of Christianity on this planet. You know, how are you gonna feel? <laughs> I mean, that's a massive thing, you know, to do. And and so look, I think we have to understand, Esther isn't just shunning and being cowardice here. Who could handle something like this? Who could function? Who could really see themselves as the hero (laughs) of the world? Not Esther, and not you and I, I'm sure. So Mordecai, much closer to the reality, and no doubt feeling something of the, the weight of this after all. I mean, what triggered all this? I mean, again, we don't want to cast stones on Mordecai, you know, we may have done the same. This Agagite was responsible for for the death of my grandfather. You know, that may make us respond. Who knew, how could Mordecai have known that this was going to turn out the death of his tribe? I guess Mordecai is prepared to die himself for his people but he could not have known this was going to be the end of his nation and so Mordecai is closer to the reality no doubt feeling some of the pressure of what's happened some responsibility in verse 13 tells the servant you know look go back and, and he lays it on thick and look it's really harsh Look, do, go say to Esther, "Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape." I don't think Esther was just trying to save it on skin here. Yeah. She's just taken back by, by what Mordecai is putting on. And nevertheless, he lays it on thick. Okay, look, there's more than one way to skin a cat. It's something I had to learn as a pastor. You know, you know, when you're dealing with people, any of you who deals with people. There's more than one way to skin the cat. There's more than one way to correct you know, a circumstance that's, that's not going well. Uh, and so, look, it seems that Mordecai is one of these people, I don't know if you've had these, you know, doctors are great people, skilled, you know, you know, great expertise, but they don't always have great personal, interpersonal skills, do they? <laughs> you know, I remember when my dad was dying of cancer, this is, this is true, seriously, you know, and we're there, he's just been diagnosed with, uh, I think, liver cancer or something like that, you know, and the consultant, and this is no joke, this is no exaggeration. Oh, your dad's got cancer, you know, he's gonna die, you know, we all have to die sometime. Seriously, I mean, you know, get another joke, man, uh, you know, just no tact, no compassion. No care, and Mordecai is somehow, you know, laying it really thick on his poor little cousin that he's responsible for. Nevertheless, look, he lays it thick. But at the end end of what he's got to say, comes to verse fourteen, and really, this is the heart of of the circumstance and the chapter. And who knows Esther? Who knows Esther? Who knows? But that you've come to royal position for such a time as this. And this is really, this is, this is how we really should have come at this, isn't it? I've got to move these. excuse me. I can't move, I feel like I'm trapped. There we go. Uh, look, he comes at it from the God perspective. Look, Esther, look, uh, forget what I've said. Look, I'm sorry. Look, you know, that is a bit thick, and you know, the way I've laid it, I shouldn't be... Badgering like this. Well, think of it like this, Esther. Esther, hey, just think about it. One day you and I were just going through Persian life without any thought. The next you're the queen of Persia. Maybe. Maybe you're there. You know that you've been trying to work out what's going on, Esther, you know, what this is all about. Maybe you've been placed there for this very moment. Maybe this is what your life's about. Don't let this go. This is an opportunity, Esther. In fact, this is an opportunity that only you, Esther, can take hold of and respond to. And, and so, having laid it on thick, but then was somehow bringing, bringing God into the perspective, if you like. Notice, notice, Esther's response and it's beautiful. Okay. Okay, says Esther. Okay. Go gather the Jews who are in Susha and fast for me. And showing that, regardless of the fact that it's virtually impossible to practice Judaism in Persian court like that. Esther has kept the faith. Can you see that? Esther has kept the faith. Go call the Jews of Susha. Fast for me. This is a religious activity. Okay, am not trying to lose weight here. This is a religious activity. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. This is serious fasting. Okay, that's that's pretty dangerous territory. Do not eat or drink. You know, you know, look, I mean, your kids are training in medicine. I mean, isn't it by the fourth day your life could be in jeopardy? You know, yeah, yeah, I thought you'd know, you know, Catherine. Uh, uh, but it's getting pretty serious not to be, to be without water. Day three. This is a serious fast. And I and my te- attendants will also fast. So she's getting her little entourage to be involved. Uh, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And, and this, is, this is a beautiful part. If I perish, I perish. And, and so you can see Esther's you know, grasp the gravity. This is serious, okay? And She's taken on this responsibility. And this is what he thinks, she thinks of her life. Well, if he's going to kill me, fair enough. I'm going to do this. And she goes in with heroism, enters the king's presence. And we're going to see next time. Esther, boy, she isn't just a beautiful... Uh, this, remember, we said she's probably one of the most beautiful ladies in the world. I know sometimes beautiful women really get it in the neck, don't they? You know, especially if they're blonde. You know, if you're beautiful and blonde, you know, you know, it's pro- you're probably going to be thought of as less than intelligent. Gloria. Were you blonde when you were younger? No, no, you're, you're, of course not. You're super intelligent. Okay, look. I, I, and so you're going to see in chapter 5, Esther may be beautiful, but boy is she sharp. Boy is she, is she smart. She goes about this whole thing without giving my sermon away, okay, in the most amazing, intellectual, wise, careful, shrewd way, okay. She doesn't just go and throw herself at the king. No, no, not Esther, okay. She doesn't listen to Mordecai, who's obviously had leave of his senses. She's got her head screwed on, okay, and she does the most amazing thing. But at least for now, she's prepared to go into the king. An ordinary girl. She is. She may be queen, but she's from downtown Sushet, okay? An ordinary girl is about to become a heroine of the Jewish race. Do you know when Jesus was recruiting his disciples? If you look at who he's recruiting, he was recruiting the elite creme de la creme of the Jewish race. Did you notice that in the people he chose to be his disciples? <laughs> no, he didn't, did he, Catherine? He didn't, okay? One of the guys he recruited was a guy that everybody hated. Who did the, who did the Jews hate more than the Romans? Yes, they hated uh, traitors. Matthew was working for the enemy. Seriously. Okay, and then it shows some fishermen. Of all the trades in Israel, do you know which was the worst trade? Yeah, a fisherman. In the country, look, I grew up in the UK, I was raised in the UK, but I was born in Bangladesh. To this day in Bangladesh, the worst trade, the trade that no one wants to marry their daughter into or have any association with is fishermen. Seriously, in Bangladesh, you're allowed to fish if you're from my clan, okay, uh, that I was born into. You're allowed to fish if it's for your own self preservation, but if you fish to sell, you'd be you'd be thrown out of the community. Seriously, because to sell fish, puts you on the lowest of the lowest rung on the ladder. Okay, how, do, how was the game today? Jesus picks at least four disciples from. The fishing trade. Jesus chose ordinary men by and large, except for Paul. Paul was no ordinary man. He's an exception to the rule. But his 12 initial disciples okay, were ordinary men. It's what Paul wrote, these words, in 1 Corinthians 1. Brothers, think of what you were when God called you. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. okay? But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose to establish his kingdom a bunch of ordinary people. And God chose to build up Living Word Bible Church a bunch of aristocrats. chose Pete. Oh my gosh, that doesn't work. He's a bank manager, wasn't he? Who's that ordinary jobs there? Do we have have any ordinary people in this church? Okay? Look, God chose Yeah, truck driver, ordinary guy. Okay? Truck driver. God chose a truck driver to be a member of this church. To make my life miserable. (laughs) To to support the work of this church. God chose an administrator, okay? Uh, 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 a health worker, health workers, okay? I'm trying to think of all the different people here. So I can't think just now. Salesman. Salesmen. Salesmen, oh huh? boy, who likes salesmen? Okay? God chose ordinary people and placed them by choice and selection and place them in Living Word Bible Church. I don't know if you ever thought of your membership of this church like that. It wasn't by random chance, but God selected you, and called you, and placed you, as members of Living Word Bible Church. And the reason he's done that in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? Yes, thank you. And something more. It's in the text. It's a comprehensive exercise. For what purpose? To do good good works. Hey, God called you into salvation and to be a member of this church because he wanted you to join a roster. Seriously. I'm not being facetious there. Seriously. God saved you and called you to be a member of this church to join a roster or two or three rosters. That's why we're here, you see. You see, when Catherine teaches junior church or Nikki does IT or Gloria and Maxine serve us tea and coffee or when Denise distributes every day with Jesus or when Naomi plays the keyboard or Sylvia welcomes someone on the door or Lorraine leads the morning prayer meeting, they are defining moments of the members of this church who have been saved and called and added to this church to perform those tasks. They're not accidental things. They're not things that hopefully you feel pressured into doing and wishing you were a part of a bigger church because there you can just sit down and no one notices you. I was to somebody this week, I think Greg, or last week. The reason New Testament churches were of the size we are is so that every member of the church had a role of function to perform to ensure that that church could function because the reason Jesus called us was to serve him. It's a quintessential aspect of our salvation. Yes, he called us because he loves us, but ultimately he wants us to serve him. Let me ask you, why did he make Adam? Adam was made, and get this one right, Adam was made obviously to fulfil whatever purpose God wants in relationship, but Adam's purpose, and this, this, is, this is why he was in the garden, what was Adam made to do? Look after the garden. Because how much of the planet did God turn into Eden? Just a tiny, tiny bit of it, Sylvia. You know, however big it was. Because what was Adam's purpose? And why did Adam, God give Adam a wife? To multiply, why? What was his purpose? What was Adam's purpose? What was he to do? And he had to do it because God does it. What was it? What was Adam's purpose? Someone have a go. Uh, is that something else? Someone ever go. What was Adam's purpose? He was the very purpose, that it's the very thing that God does and so God made someone in his image so he'll do exactly what he does. What was Adam's purpose? He was made to W-O-R-K Adam was made to Work. He was a worker. And why was Adam made to work? Jesus says it in John 5. To this day, my father has been, on the Sabbath, working, and so am I working. God never ends. The reason God made Adam, he was to work. The reason he left the planet unfinished is because Adam was, was to finish it. The reason God made you, and let me ask you this, what do you think, and don't get this one wrong, what do you think you'll be doing in heaven, Lorraine? Sorry, Lorraine, your name just, you just named, <laughs> rolls off my tongue. Okay, what will you do in heaven, Lorraine? I want to the well, you may well do that. <laughs> what else are you going to be doing in heaven, Lorraine? I want to to you may well be doing that. What else are you going to be doing in heaven, Lorraine? <laughs> oh, my God, no. You're going to be working. <laughs> to that. <laughs> you were created to work. And just as your Father in heaven never ceases to work, neither are you and I. If you're you're work shy, you're not going to like heaven. okay? Because heaven is the new Eden. And just like the first Eden, our purpose will be to work. So truck driving, mate, if that suits you, I don't think you'd be truck driving in heaven. And so the purpose of this is that we are saved to serve. Christian, your identity is tied to some degree in the rosters you're on for Living Word Bible Church. And so let me encourage you. Don't think of the things you do here as the chore of belonging to a small church and you're wishing you were somewhere else and you're wondering if you disappeared, would he notice? Yes, I've noticed, Lynn. Okay, we notice because we are a small fellowship. Okay, we would notice if you weren't here next week. It's a privilege that somebody can sing. That's a privilege. That's a privilege. That's a privilege. You know, after the service, please, really. You know when we put those seats away? Please, don't do this. You know, somebody's got to do this dirty job, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. Okay, pick it up. Say, hey, look, no hands. You know, whatever, I tell you, you know, just, just be positive. I think, wow. Do you know, I am fulfilling the purpose for which God placed me in this church. You know, one of the things they ask you at Bible college, you know, when you go and say, oh, I want to be a pastor. You know, I want, I want that head job. I want everybody to look at me. I want everybody to notice my new jumper, Sylvia. Well, it's not really, new, really. I just have never worn it in Australia before. There you go. You know, you know, I, you know I love this junk, I love the power. You know, it's not true. You know one of the questions I ask you at Bible college when you go for your interview and you say you want to be a pastor? What menial tasks and responsibilities have you been doing for the last few years in your church? Because if you haven't been cleaning the toilets, And putting chairs away, not begrudgingly, but with enthusiasm and passion, we don't need men like you in the ministry. It's true, seriously. Christian, we are called to serve. We're put here to serve. Rejoice in that. Take it as, as your opportunity and privilege and do it, joy, and whatever it costs. For some of us, I mean, who was here last night with me? It was Brenton and his wife. That cost him his Saturday evening. But God bless you, mate. Really. And look, some of you musicians, you get here at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. Oh, it was 9.30 today. God bless you for giving up that time. Look at some of you, you give up 10% of your income. Or whatever you, you give, you give. I mean, that's 10 McDonald's visits that so you can't go on. God bless you. You know, and for what you do. And here's the thing. Don't do it for me or for the management team. Do it for Jesus. Go and put yourself out there. Be a nobody. It was nobody who did that job in that opening thing I mentioned to you. And be, be enthusiastic. If you're not on a roster, get on a roster. If you're only on one roster, get on two. If Jesus really is going to when I get to heaven, he's going to want to know how I served him. Do as much of it as you can. And be joyful. And let me say this one thing to you. God bless you, Living Word Bible Church. Because in many ways, I hard, when I was writing this, I was thinking, this is preaching to the converted. I can't think of a person in this building who, who isn't serving this church in some capacity, whether it's giving or whether it's and you know, moving around chairs. God bless you. Living Word Bible Church needs you. You serve and know in doing so, you are fulfilling the purpose for which God called you. You are here for such a time as this. (coughs) Amen.